Okay, we're uh, going through the book of Genesis. We're very close to the end. I thought this might be the last class, but it's not. There's more more material here than I had uh, had had realized in the last few chapters. So we're going to pick it up where we left off in the last class in Genesis 46. Background, Joseph has become second in command of all of Egypt under Pharaoh. The seven-year famine he predicted has finally come to pass after the seven years of plenty. And so it's come upon Egypt and all the surrounding nations, including Canaan. His brothers come down from, from Canaan because they're starving, and they buy food. And he reveals himself to his brothers, and then he very graciously shows a lot of compassion toward them, despite what they've done to him, and he invites the whole family to come down, including and have them, their father brought down uh, from Canaan as well into Egypt. So there, his father Jacob is now an old man, and he's very excited to hear that Joseph is still alive. His brothers had made up a story that he was dead. And so the entire family, the entire extended family, is now moving down to Egypt. I want to pick up the story. We'll be reading some longer sections today. And I'm going to read Genesis chapter, the end of chapter 45, just to give a little context. And Genesis chapter uh, 45, starting in verse 25 through 46, verse 7. And I'm reading from. a Bible translation with the Old Testament is based on the Septuagint, which may be a little bit different than what you're used to, but we will, uh, I'll have say a little more about that in, in a few minutes. Genesis 45 and verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to Jacob their father. Thus they told him, saying, Joseph, your son, is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob's mind was completely stunned, for he could not believe them. But when they told him all the words Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him, uh, had, had the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It's a great thing to me that my son John Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46, starting in verse 1. Now Israel took his journey with all he had. Of course, Israel is the name for Joseph, uh, Jacob, the same thing. And came to the well of Oath and offered a sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. So he said, Here I am. So God said to him, I am the God of your fathers. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose in the well of oath, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their baggage, and their wives in the carts Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his seed went with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Egypt. Okay. So, what we've learned here is Jacob's an old man, and before he dies, he wants to see his son Joseph again. On the way down, the Lord speaks to him in a night vision and tells him that God says, I will bless your trip down there. I'll make your family into a great nation in Egypt. And the Lord says he'll go with him and he will bring him back again. And the second part of that is fulfilled after he dies, that he would come back. Uh, His body is returned to Canaan to be buried there. And then he says, Joseph will put his hand on the eyes of Jacob. Now I would assume what he's talking about is when people die, a lot of times they die with their eyes open and somebody closes their eyelids before they get buried. This is generally what happens. So he says you're... That, that Joseph will be there and will put his hand on your eyes. I think that's what it's referring to. So Jacob travels down to Egypt in a cart. He's a very old man, along with the wives, the children, the livestock, and all the belongings of a big extended family. 
So I want to give a little little summary of what follows. In the rest of chapter 46, it lists all the descendants of Jacob who went down to Egypt, and it also mentions the descendants of Joseph who were already down there. It's all listed in, in, in chapter 46. Now I have a question for you, and as usual, it's a trick question, so you have to be very careful. At the end of Genesis 46... Look in your Bible and tell me how many total descendants of Jacob would be down in Egypt at the end of this. And I'll I'll give you a hint. It's in uh, verse 27. How about 75? Okay, I I get a 75. Do I get any other numbers here? Ten. Ten? <laughs> that doesn't say that in your Bible, Adam. Does it say anything other than 75 in anyone's Bible? How many, what were the total number of people who went down to Egypt? Here's one version that says, ESV says 70. Okay, in one version it says 70, in another version it says 75. So, depends on which Bible you have. Anybody in here have a Bible that says 70 in it? Okay. Anybody have a Bible in here that says 75? Okay, so it's roughly, we're roughly split half and half <laughs> down there. Now, you, and we might brush over that and say, well, who cares what difference it makes is it 70 or 75? Well, uh, the reason why some Bibles say 70 and some say 75 ties into a comment I made earlier. is that uh, the Bible that I'm reading from, the Old Testament is based on the Septuagint. And the Bible that and that says 75. In the Bibles that are based on the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, it says 70. And if you go to the beginning of the story of Exodus, it starts off in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 5, and it also tells you, uh, when the story picks up several hundred years later, how many people went down. And it's the same split. If it's a Masoretic text Bible, it says 70. If it's Septuagint, it says 75. And uh, so... uh, the, the curious thing is Stephen, so Septuagint says 75, Masoretic text says 70, depending on which Old Testament you're using is what it says. Let's turn to Acts chapter 7. Stephen recounts this story right before he gets stoned. He's telling the story of the Jewish nation to a rather unsympathetic crowd of religious Jewish zealots. In Acts chapter 7, verses, starting at verse 12. Now this is out of the New King James Version. So it's going, to be, it's going to be pretty much the same in whatever Bible you're reading. Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 12, it says, When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph made known to his brothers, was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our father. So Septuagint says 75, Masoretic text says 70. Question, what was Stephen obviously reading? He's reading the Septuagint. He is speaking to a rather hostile crowd. He's not going to be picking a weak version that everybody suspects is bogus to be quoting from that. So people ask me, Chuck, why do you read this strange version of the Old Testament? And I say, well, this is the version that Stephen was reading, and he's quoting from, and that Peter and Paul are. So it's good enough for them, it's, it's good enough for me, as the old song goes, all right? So, so that's one of the reasons, a little, little throwaway comment. Uh, So the story picks up here. Joseph reunites with his father, Jacob, and they have a very tearful reunion, very moving. I want to read that. Genesis chapter 46, starting in verse 28. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph that he might meet him in, in Goshen in the land of Ramesses. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept a good while. Then Israel said to Joseph, 
Now let me die in peace, since I have seen your face, because you're still alive. Joseph then said to his brothers, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brethren, those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. But the men are shepherds, for they are pastoral men, and they have brought their flocks and herds and all they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants are pastoral men from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen in Arabia. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So, uh, they're reunited, and this is the story. He says you're going to get the good land, the land down in Goshen. This is, this is the land of Goshen that they're going to be in. And uh, they're to say that they're shepherds because there was something that the Egyptians found objectionable about that. So this is, this is their finally, Jacob is reunited with his long lost son, Joseph. And then they go before Pharaoh. In chapter 47, I'm going to read verses 7 to 12. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourn are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil they have been. But they have not attained the days and years of my father's sojourn in life. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before him. Thus Joseph settled his father and brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramesses as Pharaoh commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their individual persons. So here... Jacob is 130 years old, so he says uh, very, very humbly, my days are, are few and evil. <laughs> He's had a tough life. And he blesses Pharaoh, who, who pretty clearly is, is a younger man. And Joseph graciously provides bread for his brothers and settles them in. In Genesis chapter 47, the famine intensifies and continues. So the famine was going to be... It was the vision was seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. So they're into the seven years of famine, but it's still going on. And things get pretty bad. Uh, people from Egypt and Canaan and the surrounding areas are coming down to Egypt because Joseph has the keys to the granary and everyone in the world basically needs to go to him for food, as we had mentioned in the previous class. And they have to, he doesn't give, this isn't a free operation that he's running here. They can buy food from him. So first of all, they give him their money until their money runs out. Then they give him all their livestock until the livestock runs out. And what do they do after that? Next they sell their land and they said they basically turn themselves in as servants or slaves. So they're having to give up literally everything they have to get the grain to survive. We talked in the last class, we talked quite a bit about the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And notice that people from all over the world are coming to him and have to give up everything they have to get the bread of life. And so... That's the arrangement that they make. They give up their land, they move into the cities, and they're taken care of, and he provides them uh, grain, he provides them with, with seed for the future, and make sure that they have enough to eat. But they have to, cash, they have to cash it in completely. And the people's attitude, Genesis chapter 47, verse 25, the people say, their attitude is, you have saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So the people are happy to do that because they look at this as you're saving our lives. Uh, it reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. 
Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Chapter 47, continuing in the story, Jacob is an old man who's preparing for death. I'm going to read verses 27 down to 31. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen. They acquired possessions there and increased and multiplied exceedingly. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Thus, when the time drew near for Jacob to die, he called his sons Joseph and said to him, I have found grace, and if I have found grace in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and deal with me in mercy and truth. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. So he said, I will do as you say. Then he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the top of his staff. So 17 years after he comes down, he was 130 when he came down, he's 147 years old, and he sees that his death is near. He has Joseph swear to bury his father back in the land of Canaan where he came from, not in Egypt. And then there's an interesting little line at the end of the chapter that I just read. It says that Israel uh, bowed himself or worshipped on the top of his staff. And the reason why that's interesting, in some of your some of your translations, it might say something a little different than that. It might say that he something about on the he bowed down on the head of his bed, something like that. I see some nods in the room. And the reason why they're different, once again, is in the Septuagint, it said he bowed down on the top of his staff. In the Masoretic text, he says on the head of his bed. In Hebrews chapter 11, when the Hebrews writer is retelling this story, it says, by faith went Jacob... This is Hebrews 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his, the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So the Hebrews writer assumes that you're reading the Septuagint also, not just Stephen. Uh, if you compare it, the wording is exactly the same. If you, if you want to go back and, and check it out in the Greek, it's the, the, using the same language. So obviously the Hebrews writer is reading the same thing. So... Um, Chapter forty-eight. Let's move on to there. And this is this is a uh, this is a uh, a text that we, that we need to wrestle with here. There's a lot of detail in here. You know, as, as most of you know, I spend little to no time with emphasis on no time reading commentaries on the Bible and putting lessons together. I'm just wrestle with the scriptures. And I was impressed years ago by a book with the impressive title of How to Read a Book. had a big impact on me. It's a book on what's exactly what it's about. It's about how to read, how to read a book. You think, well, Chuck, didn't you figure it out when you're five or six years old? Well, no, it's about how to become a really good reader. And the book has probably influenced my Bible study more than any book that I've read because what it says if, is if you really want to be a good reader, now, a lot of people read themselves to sleep at night, okay? There, you, can, you, can, you can do that. You can read to turn your brain off to just, to just go unconscious when you're reading. But to be a good reader, what you have to do, I mean, think about it. If you're in a class with a lecturer and you don't understand something, you raise your hand and you ask a question. The problem with a book is you can't do that. But it doesn't mean you don't ask questions. A good reader, an active reader, when he's reading this text, will be asking questions of the text. But the problem is, then you have to go back as the reader and dig out the answer. So that's why this is work, to wrestle with the text. You read something, and then you start asking questions, and then you've got to go back and dig out the answers to the questions. And the question is, what did the writer mean, not what do I want to talk about or think about that makes me feel good about my own agenda? Okay, so, so that's, 
That's the challenge to be a good reader. And I'm hoping in, in focusing on expository teaching that we all want to strive to be really good readers to, to not just pull a few random things out of the scriptures, but to mine the scriptures and to ask. The, but what it takes is work, and you read it, and you have to ask the question. So we're going to ask, I'm going to ask some tough questions, and we're going to wrestle through this together. So I'm going to read the, the whole chapter here, and then uh, uh, recap the storylines. This is, now, I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of detail in this story, and it's all there for a reason. So... You have to question, now why, why are we going into all this? Do I really need to know this? So, so that, that's one of the questions right off the bat. So Genesis chapter 48, I'm going to read the whole thing. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and went to Jacob. Thus Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, My God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will increase and multiply you. I will make of you a gathering of nations and give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting possession. Now therefore your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon. They shall be mine. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall take possession of their inheritance within the tribes of their brothers. But as for me, when I came from Mesopotamia of Syria, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was but little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these with you? So Joseph said to his father, They are my my sons God gave me here. Jacob then said, Bring them to me that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim by reason of old age, and he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed and embraced them. Then Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has shown me your seed. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and they bowed down with their face to the ground. Then Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Thus Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed them and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac were well pleasing, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless these lads. Let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a great multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw his father put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. So Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be exalted. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he is, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will be blessed, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. I am giving you Shechem, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and bow. So we'll stop there. So this is the strange blessing scene of the grandson. So just to recap, get the basic storyline, then we'll, we'll dig into it. 
Uh, so Jacob is very old, near death, 147 years old. His son Joseph brings... Uh, uh, his two sons, Manasseh is the older one, and Ephraim is the younger one to see their grandfather as he is near death. And Jacob, the grandfather, says, these two grandsons of me are going to be counted as my sons. So they will get an inheritance in Canaan along with their basically their uncles. Uh, that they're going to become tribes uh, as well. And then there's this whole confusing switching of the hands scene that goes on there. And that's what I want to dig into, what that's all about. So the question I would have is, and this is described in a great deal too, there's so much detail here that with four people, we could reenact the whole thing exactly right here in the living room if we wanted to. We know who's at whose right hand, left hand, uh, the, the whole we could we could redo we could reenact the whole thing if we wanted to do that. So, why is this in here? What's this right hand left hand discussion all about? And Joseph's attempt to switch his father's hand, his father's refusing to do it. What's this all about? And why is there so much detail in this story? Now. Let's start off with a few things that we can say for sure and move, move in from that. Now, obviously, the right-hand blessing was the favored blessing. I mean, think about it. Psalm 110, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He doesn't say sit beside me wherever you want. He doesn't say sit at my left hand. He says sit at my right hand. The right hand is the favored side. Now, I happen to be right-handed, so... That makes perfect sense to me. My wife is left-handed. She may think otherwise. But the right hand, the right hand would be the favored side. Even today, somebody say, well, that guy's my right-hand man. You know what they're talking about. That, it means that, that's my number one guy. That's the first guy that I, I rely on. So the blessing, the, the right-hand blessing, uh, you know, sit on my right and my left, the favored side is the right-hand side. Now, Joseph wants... His oldest son. Now, now, Joseph is the 11th of 12 boys. So, but he knows that the, the greatest blessing, the right-hand blessing, should go to his oldest son. He knows that. And I'm thinking, why in the world would, would his father, Jacob, be so stubborn about that? So it's just kind of racking my brains thinking about why is he doing this, uh, uh, breaking tradition and convention. I thought, well... Let's go back to the time when his father blessed him. He was the second oldest son, and he basically swindled his father and brother to get the blessing. So this was a situation where you had two sons, Jacob and Esau. In this case, Jacob was the younger son who ended up getting the greater blessing. So I think, well, maybe he has some secret sympathy for the younger of two brothers because because of that's the way where he grew up maybe this is a throwback to a hundred years earlier when he was getting his blessing uh, i don't know i'm just trying to, to figure this thing out so joseph tries to straighten him out and he refuses to do that so uh, joseph lines up the brothers the right way so he he lines up the older brother manasseh right by where Jacob's right hand should go, and Ephraim, the younger, where his left hand should go. But Jacob doesn't play along with this. He switches his hands and blesses them the other way. Uh, his hands, you can, if those who are in the room, you can see my hands are crossed right now. It's imagine there, there are two boys that are kneeling down before me for a blessing. Rather than doing it the right way, he crosses his hands, so his right hand is crossed over onto the younger brother, his left hand is onto the older brother. And, and uh, Joseph is agitated and tries to move his father's hand. His father said, no, I'm doing it this way. This is the way it's going to be. The younger son is going to receive the greater blessing of the two. Now, <clears throat> well, let's start off some things we looked at in prior classes, this older sibling, younger sibling thing that goes on. Several places in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, where there are two siblings that are, that are striving with each other, 
It's the younger sibling that gets the greater blessing. The first example I think of is Isaac and Ishmael, the sons of Abraham. The greater blessing goes to uh, Isaac, not to the firstborn Ishmael. But uh, Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 4. And he says that that's foreshadowing that the younger son, the Gentiles, the church, would receive a greater blessing than the older son, the Jews. That, that was God was foreshadowing that in that story. Uh, then later on, Jacob gets the greater blessing versus his brother Esau. When the two brothers are there, he steals it, but the younger son also gets the greater blessing. In Malachi chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, they talk about that as well. And then there's the story of Rachel and Leah. Which one is the older sister? Leah is the older sister, and she's the one who gets married first, but Rachel is the favored sister. She's the one that's really loved. And some of the early Christians, like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, we talked about this in the class that we did on Genesis 29 to 31, they saw this as the same thing. The same pattern is going on again and again, that the younger of the two gets the greater blessing, foreshadowing that while the Jews were God's people first, that it will be the Gentiles that would get the greater blessing. So that's uh, some early Christian writers saw the pattern, and not surprising, a couple of them saw the same pattern here. They're saying this is the same story, that the younger, it's foreshadowing, that the younger sibling would get the greater blessing. The uh, uh, Cyprian, who's a church leader in North Africa, pointed to the example of Jacob and Esau, and he said, basically, this is the same thing going on here. If anybody wants to check that out, that's the Ananicene Fathers, Volume 1, pages 512 to 513. Now, okay, that's the older, younger part of it. That makes sense, that fits with, if, if what Cyprian is saying and the other early Christian writers are saying is right, there's certainly a pattern there that makes sense that this is once again that the, the foreshadowing the church versus the Jews, the younger sibling would become the greater nation. Uh, now, what about the whole hand position, left-right switching of the hands? What's that all about? And why is there so much explanation about exactly where everyone is positioned so that you can visually imagine the whole thing? You can recreate it in your mind, or you can recreate it with four people in a room. Why all the details there? Why do we need to know that? Chuck, why are we even stopping to take a look at this? And the reason why we're taking a stop and take a look at it is because it's there. And so we have to ask, don't have to ask God the question, not me. The Holy Spirit, why is this in there? Why is this important? And, and I think there's one early Christian writer who gave a very interesting insight into this, and I'll share it with you. You can accept it or reject it as you choose. And this was Novation, who is a uh, writer who's writing about the Trinity, the nature of the Son of God. He's using the Old Testament to explain some of these things. And he, uh, I think he died around the year 250. But he was a leader in the church in Rome in the beginning. He had some interesting things to say. And one of the things he pointed out is, let's take a look at the blessing that was given. Let's go back and read again chapter 48, verses 7, 15 and 16. This is how he blesses the two sons. It says, Then he blessed them and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac were well pleasing, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless these lads. Question. When he says, the God of my fathers, the God who fed me all my life, and the angel who redeemed me from all evil, is he talking about one person or two? What is he talking about? Let me give you an example. If, 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 uh, if Susan were to ask me, says, well, are you having any guests over for Thanksgiving dinner this week? And if I said, well... I'm having over uh, the guy who is my uncle and the, the NBA center for the Boston Celtics. Now, you could say, 
Now, is that one person or is that two people? Do we? Does that mean you have to set one chair or two? Are you are you using? Are you describing the same person in two different ways? He is your uncle and he's the center for the Celtics. Or are you talking about two different people? Because the way I answer the question, you can't tell. Correct? And uh, so it, it's the same thing here. Well, I'm saying, okay, the God who fed me all my life the and the angel Lord who redeemed me from all evil, is this the same person or two different people? Is he asking for a blessing from God and the angel? Or is he referring to the same person two different ways? I'm having some puzzle looks here. So I never would have asked this question, but an early Christian writer pointed it out to me. And, and uh, he, said, he said, first of all, he said, the, the, uh, bless these lads. In English, you can't tell the difference because I can say it's a statement. Bless, may you bless these lads. You can say it to one person. You can say it to two people. You can say it to 100 people. Uh, he said, actually, it's, it's, it's in singular there, so it's obviously that we're refer- both of them are referring to the same thing. If I said... Uh, if, if they said, well, uh, what time is, the, yes, my, my uncle is coming and, and my, the NBA player is coming, and if I said, and he will be arriving at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, that would automatically make it clear, no, you're talking about singular, it's one person, not two. This, this is the same language there as singular, but even if you didn't know that or couldn't see that, let's take a look back in... In Genesis chapter 31. In Genesis chapter 31. This is the story when Jacob is chafing. Uh, at the oppressive treatment at the hands of his uncle Laban before he is get ready to leave. And he's telling his wives about how God was taking care of him while he was under Laban, Laban's uh, abusive employee. I'll start reading in verse 11. So he says, Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, thus I said, Here I am. So he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the male goats and the rams mating with the sheep and the goats are speckled, spotted, and ash-colored speckled. For I have seen everything Laban is doing to you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and made a vow to me. Now then, arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your nativity, and I will be with you. So, now let's think about that question again. When he says, the God who took care of me and the angel of the Lord, is that referring to one person or two? Because here he says, verse 11, the angel of God spoke to me, And then in verse 13, I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel. So obviously, the expression, the angel of God and God are referring to the same person. That make sense? Mm Yeah. Okay, so the expression, the angel of God and God here are used to mean the same thing. And he said, I'm the one who appeared to you at Bethel. Now, what happened at Bethel? Bethel was when he was in his 40s, and he was fleeing from where his brother, his brother wanted to kill him. He was fleeing and going off to Haran to, to hopefully find a wife. And he stopped at Bethel, and he put his head down on the stone, and he had the vision of the stairway leading up to heaven. The angels of God ascending and descending, and it says, and the Lord was at the top of the stairway, was above the stairway, and speaking to you. And he says, I'm the one, he says right here, I'm the one who appeared to you back at Bethel. So this is going even further back into his history. So Jacob had several encounters with someone later on when he, even after the story, after he, uh, before he is reunited with Esau, it says that he wrestled with a man all night long. And then it says, you have prevailed with God and with man. So 
What's going on here? He's having all these encounters. And it's one place it says the Lord. Another one it says God. Another one it says a man. Another one it says the angel of God. And he's seeing these people here also. Now, is it possible for any man to see God? No. John chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 6. This is uh, uh, scriptures we should be familiar with it says no one first uh, Timothy 6 16 it says God who dwells who ha- alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see so could Jacob have seen the father no no but it says he saw God he wrestled with God and it's also referred to as the angel of God how do you put this together the early Christians said, and, and Novation's using this argument of the story in the Old Testament, he's, he's pushing people to say, look, you can't see God, you can't see the Father, but you can see the Son of God. It's possible to see the Son of God. So when it talks about someone wrestling with God, seeing with God, or the angel of God, that the Son of God who became man in Christ existed before all time, and appeared several times in Scripture, particularly in the life of Jacob. Throughout his life, he had these encounters with the Son of God. Basically, that's what he's saying. Who can take on the form of a human, or can take on the form of an angel, and who can be seen, and ultimately took on the form of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ. So... That's the point that Novation is making was he was interacting with. And so when he's asking for the God who was with him throughout his life, through all these trials, the angel of God, he's referring to the Son of God and asking for the Son of God to bless his grandsons. And the way that he blesses his grandsons Asking for the blessing of the Son of God is with the crossed arms. It's the blessing of the cross. And this is a point that Novation makes here. Referring to the story of this blessing, it says, He Himself, referring to the Son of God, was invoked in the blessing of these lads by the sacrament of the passion imitated in the type or pattern of the crossed hands as both God and angel. So what he's saying is that in this story that the Son of God was being called on as a blessing through the sign, offering the sign of the cross. The early Christians saw many appearances of the Christ, the life of Christ, the cross of Christ, baptism, many other things in the scriptures. This isn't the first place in our story in Genesis that we've run into a foreshadowing of the cross. The first place I think of is in Genesis chapter 22, where the beloved son of Abraham is going to be sacrificed. And Abraham takes his beloved son up the mountain to the place of sacrifice and he's carrying the wood of the cross on his shoulder to the place of sacrifice, the beloved son. And God provides a substitute and he's bound hand and foot. This is a foreshadowing the cross. So we see the wood, the passion, the the walk to Calvary. And in this story here, if Novation's right, we also see the form and shadow of the cross itself, right in the book of Genesis. If he's right, why is the cross so important? That the cross is the way in which the blessings of Christ will come to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting at verse 22, for Jews request a sign 
And Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling blocks, and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the cross to a lot of Christians is Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. Isn't that great that he did all of that for me? That's only part of the story of the blessing of the cross. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 that it applies to the blessing of the cross applies to us in a very personal way as well. Luke 9:23 Jesus said if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Peter gets very specific about what it means for us to follow Christ in his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 20. Let's turn there if you have a Bible. He says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow him, if there is any doubt whatsoever what it means to take up your cross, this should shatter that. Peter says, Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps, that we are called to suffer like he did, to follow him. That's what that means. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. In chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire, fiery trial which is to try you as though something strange happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering. In verse 19 he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Peter calls us to lead holy and righteous lives and to follow the example of Christ on the cross and being willing to suffer for righteousness every day, just like what Jesus says, is that if we want to follow him, we have to take up our cross. And I think that's the challenge before us, that God is, throughout the scriptures, pointing to the cross. That There are many foreshadowings of the cross. I think what Novation is pointing out here, to me, makes perfect sense that this is a foreshadowing of the cross, that there is a reason why he crossed his arms to give the blessing of of the Son of God onto his descendants. And that's a challenge, I think, that that, uh, the modern church in general doesn't want to hear. They want to believe in, in the part of the cross that Christ died for us, but the idea that we are called to suffer, that we have to take up our cross, and that our lives will be blessed by taking up our cross and suffering for righteousness as well. That's, that's tough. That's, that's, not a, that's not a popular message today. Uh, Allison and I just finished. We went to a, a class. Uh, some people I tell you, some people might think less of me for this, but I'll tell you anyway. Is the, uh, we were going to a class that was on... Uh, uh, finan- basically, it was on financial planning, but it was taught by a very popular uh, 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 evangelical Christian uh, 
uh, I would say, teacher, commentator, whatever. And uh, he's very, very well-known uh, guy. You probably can guess who it was right off the bat. But we went through the whole series. There's some parts of the class that I thought were really good. He's, he really talks about being generous, that we should treat money as if we're stewards of it. We should want to be giving to other people. He talked about financial responsibility, having a budget, living within your budget. It means some, some very good principles that were there. There were some biblical principles. There were definitely uh, some of Jesus' teachings about money that, that did not penetrate into that class for sure. Uh, however, one of the things that I got out of, out of being in the class, and it was, it was a, a video conference type of format for the class, was I, I was raised Roman Catholics. I was never an evangelical Protestant, and, and I was in uh, Churches of Christ uh, for many years. So... This is an, the whole evangelical world is completely a new thing to me. But it became clear, first of all, there are a lot more of those people out there than there are people who are like us. Uh, that you know, the, in, in terms of the mindset, that there are, there are millions of these people who who think like this. But the approach is that it, it's about having a really good life. Have a good family, have good finances, have a comfortable life. You know, everything's going to be great. If you put the teachings of Christ into practice, you're going to have a great family, you're going to have a great life, you're going to avoid all these problems. And it was clear, listening to the messages, that that's the underpinning idea of how they understand the Christian faith. And that's not it at all. Jesus died on the cross for us, and he's calling us to take up our cross and to be willing to suffer. Who says you're going to have a nice, wonderful, happy family if you become a Christian? Jesus says the opposite. He says, I'm going to rip families to shreds. I'm going to tear them apart two against three, three against two. So there's no guarantee at all. In fact, everything in the scriptures points in the opposite direction. But I think that's why the cross is so important that, it, that it's even coming out in the Old Testament. So I think some lessons that we can learn from Joseph's blessing of his two sons. I mean, one thing is in the scriptures, he, after this, Ephraim is always mentioned before Manasseh. They say, well, it's always Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes. Ephraim always comes first. Now you know why. Uh, because... Uh, Jacob reversed the order. Uh, there's something beautiful about the fact that all the suffering that Joseph went through, that he basically gets the double blessing. He gets two tribes. So you think, wow, all that, that time in jail and the rejection and the good character that he showed, the great attitude, that, that he's blessed through his sons, that, his, his, that he's doubled. He's basically getting a double portion, which is wonderful. And I think the other things we can take from this story is that... Uh, the second son, another, another indication that the second son, the Gentiles, the church, which would be uh, everybody here in this room as far as I know, uh, would become the greater descendant, the greater offspring, the greater nation than the Jews, those who were, those who were first. And ultimately, that the offspring will be blessed by the father through the blessing of coming through the Son of God, through the blessing of the cross. Amen.